A husband, wife, and teenage son found dead in their home. Investigators are now confident calling this cold case closed 50 years later. Crime scene pictures gave us a closer look at what happened to the Durham family way back in 1972. Bryce, Virginia, and their son Bobby all found tied up and dumped in a bathtub. Four suspects are now connected to their murders. Channel 9's Dave Fairty found out that the suspects had ties to a group called the Dixie Mafia and that this was a hired hit. Billy Wayne Davis has been in prison for 35 years, serving a life sentence for a murder in Georgia. Today, we learned Watauga deputies visited him three times in the past three years and are able to link him and three others to the 1972 murder of the Durham family in Boone. That's when a family member found Bryce and Virginia Durham strangled to death in their bathroom, along with their 18-year-old son, Bobby. Pat Maddox's husband was an SBI agent who spent years following leads in the case. Sheriff deputies shared these crime scene photos today, showing the house ransacked. Bryce Durham owned a car dealership in Boone. His vehicle was stolen the night of the murders, and the family's silverware was later found inside the SUV. His daughter released a statement today saying in part, I would like to thank all the people who worked for decades on my family's case. I know they sacrificed many days and weekends in order to work on solving this case since 1972. Sheriff deputies say Davis was part of a group known as the Dixie Mafia, they tracked him down after getting a tip from the son of another suspect who remembered his dad talking about killing three people in the North Carolina mountains. Those other three suspects are all dead now. Pat Maddox's husband has also died, but she believes he would be glad to know this case has been solved. So the question remains now is who hired those four men and why? And is that person still alive? We also looked more into the Dixie Mafia. We found a 1974 article by the New York Times that said that the group was Georgia-based and connected to dozens of violent crimes across the Southeast in the 1960s and 70s. And it said that they were not a traditional mafia, which is typically defined as family members. Instead, a special agent called the Dixie Mafia, an unorganized group of traveling criminals, including burglars, car thieves, and drug dealers. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcasts, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, we are going to go back a few decades to explore the very tangled history of the one and only Dixie Mafia. On the other true crime show that I produce, for killer podcasts is Crime Capsule. And we actually did a few episodes dedicated to this crew of misfits. If any of the stories that I bring up today sound interesting and you want to learn more, I would highly recommend them. Host Benjamin Morris spoke with a number of authors who have done work about this group, and it's quite intriguing. So you're probably wondering who the Dixie Mafia was. And they were a very loose network of criminals who operated across the South in the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s. They were dealing in drugs, gambling, prostitution, and, of course, murder. But they weren't really a gang. They were just a bunch of dudes that just kind of hung out together and did some shady stuff. So they didn't really have any rules or leaders Except for one thing, and that was just never rat your friends out to the cops. And if we've all seen Goodfellas, which I'm assuming we all have, that's just kind of a 
run-of-the-mill type of thing. So they didn't care about turf or money or respect. They just wanted to have fun and basically cause trouble. Uh, sometimes they would rob stores, uh, break into cars. They could spray paint walls, start fights, kind of just basic tomfoolery. And uh, yeah, they just never gave up each other's names. And they were also known to work with other mobsters, such as the New Orleans crime family and the Chicago outfit. I was actually reading an article about a cold case that was solved this past year, and it sent me down a rabbit hole. And according to the network, the, quote, shocking cold case from half a century ago that was finally cracked thanks to a tip from a Georgia inmate who confessed to his son, the Watauga County Sheriff's Office in North Carolina announced that they had solved a triple homicide that had happened in Boone during a snowstorm in February 1972. The victims were a family of three who were brutally murdered by a group of hitmen from the notorious Dixie Mafia. The killers who carried out the Boone massacre were identified as Billy Sunday Burt, put a pin in that one, Billy Jean Gaddis, Charles David Reed, and Billy Wayne Davis. Hey, Billy Wayne Davis. He's the guy from Behind the Bastards, and he's a great comedian. That can't be the same guy. Of course it's not. Now, they were part of a Georgia-based crew that was hired by someone to eliminate the Durham family, Bryce, Virginia, and Bobby, 18. The motive of the hit at that time was still unknown. The case had remained unsolved for decades, decades until 2019, when Shane Burt visited with his father, Billy, and the elder Burt was serving a life sentence for another murder and was dying of cancer. So you can basically say this is a deathbed confession. He told his son that he had participated in killing three people in North Carolina during a heavy snowstorm and that they had almost gotten caught. Shane Burt later shared this story with a writer who was interviewing him for a book about the Georgia crimes. Now, the writer did contact the White County Sheriff's Office, who then alerted the Watauga County Sheriff's Office, and one thing led to another. So it was after an extensive investigation that authorities were able to confirm that Billy Sunday Burt and his accomplices were actually responsible for the Durham murders. Now, however, Burt died in prison in 2017, Gaddis died in 2009, and Reed died in 2016. Davis only is 81, and he's the only one that's still surviving, and he's still incarcerated. So, again, they were known as, like, the Dixie Mob, and this was just, again, a, just a criminal organization that operated in the southern United States. Now, they're based in Biloxi, Mississippi, and the group was composed of mostly white Southerners who engaged in, as I said, a number of illegal activities and... You can just imagine all those. I will run you down a list of all the different things that they do because they basically do everything. So again, like I told you before, they don't have a hierarchy. They don't have any social structure. They were just notorious for carrying out contract killings, especially against former members who had been cooperating with authorities. And they also dealt with them if they threatened to expose their crimes. So the Dixie Mafia had a strong presence in states like Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, Florida, 
And they would often collaborate, as I mentioned, with other groups. Some of these groups like the New Orleans Crime Family and the Chicago Outfit. We've all seen the firm. The Dixie Mafia was also known for infiltrating law enforcement agencies and corrupting public officials to protect their interests and avoid prosecution. So the Dixie Mafia's reign of terror basically lasted decades until many of its members were either arrested, killed, or died of natural causes. Now, the most infamous members of the Dixie Mafia were Mike Gillich Jr., Billy Sunday Burt, Billy Wayne Davis, Bobby Jean Gaddis, and Charles David Reed. Some of these I will get into later. Now, this criminal organization, quote-unquote, was, again, out of Mississippi, and, you know, they basically did things like move stolen merchandise, uh, you know, alcohol, drugs, extortion, drug trafficking, and gambling, racketeering, you name it, they did it. And again, bootlegging was a big one. Arson. They were just really, <laughs> I guess they were the uh, dark web of the uh, pre-internet days. So, you know, like I said before, this was one of those groups of people that uh, did a lot of crazy things. I mean, some of the most infamous crimes the Dixie Mafia committed were, like I mentioned before, the 1973 murder of Judge Vincent Sherry and his wife, Margaret Sherry, a former councilwoman and and mayoral candidate in Biloxi, Mississippi. One of the most notorious crimes in the history of the Gulf Coast was the 1973 murder of Judge Vincent Sherry and his wife, Margaret. Now, again, they were both shot to death in their home, and the couple was killed by a contract killer who was hired by Mike Gillich Jr., and now he was considered the unofficial kingpin of the Dixie Mafia. So, again, like there wasn't really a structure, but there was some sort of structure. Now, the murder was part of a complex and twisted plot that involved Kirksey McCord Nix Jr., another leader of the Dixie Mafia, who was serving time in prison for another murder. Now, Nix was running a lucrative scam behind bars, and this is interesting. He was extorting money from gay men by pos posing as a potential lover and then threatening to expose them. Nix had entrusted some of the money to Pete Hallett, a lawyer and former law partner of Judge Sherry, who had ambitions to become mayor of Biloxi. Hallett had spent the money on his own interest and blamed Sherry for stealing it. Nix believed him and ordered Gillich to arrange the hit on the Sherrys. The case remained unsolved for a decade until, until Gillich decided to cooperate with authorities and confess to his role in the murder. Crazy. He also implicated Hallett and Nix as the masterminds behind the murder plot. Hallett was eventually convicted, and he did get sentenced to 18 years in prison. Nix, however, received a life sentence without parole, and Gillich died of cancer in 2013. The trigger man, Thomas Leslie Holcomb, also died in prison in 2005 from natural causes. Another one of their crimes was the slaying in 1987 of Georgia Sheriff Edward E. Williams. The Georgia Sheriff uh, was basically murdered in cold blood, and this was also linked to this group. He was 47 and the Sheriff of Telfair County. He was investigating a drug ring that involved some members of this 
Dixie Mafia. He was apparently ambushed and shot multiple times by two gunmen while driving in his patrol car on a rural road on March 25th, 1987. The killers fled the scene and were never identified or captured. The case remained unsolved again for years until 1998 when a former Dixie Mafia member named Billy Sunday Burt confessed to being one of the shooters. Burt was already serving a life sentence. The name, again, sounds familiar because that's who we were talking about before. So, again, these people were all working hand and foot together, and it was, um, yeah, I mean, it was just crazy because <clears throat> basically what happened was, you know, Reed was a Dixie Mafia member, and he had been arrested by Williams in 1986 for drug trafficking, and while he was awaiting trial, Bert said he and Geddes were paid ten grand to put a hit on the uh, sheriff, which is insane to think about. But they used a rifle and a revolver to take Williams out. And they said that they had followed Williams for several days before finding an opportunity to, quote-unquote, ambush him. Bert's confession had led to the indictment of Reed and Gaddis for the murder of Williams in 1999. Reed pleaded guilty and received a life sentence without parole. Now, Gaddis pleaded not guilty and went to trial in 2000. However, he was convicted and sentenced to death, but he did die of natural causes while on death row in 2014. And then you have Kirksey McCord Nix Jr., which sounds very Southern. And he was considered a ruthless criminal who led the Dixie Mafia. Now, he was the suspect in the assassination attempt on Sheriff Buford Pucer, that's, I'm going to go by that. I'm just going to tell you that's how I'm saying it. And the killing of his wife in 1967. But he never did admit his role in those crimes. However, in 1972, Nix was convicted of murdering Frank Corso, who was a wealthy New Orleans businessman, during a break-in at his home. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole. However, that did not stop him from continuing his activities from behind bars. Now, this is the guy that is super interesting. He devised the, quote, lonely heart scam that I mentioned before, which targeted homosexuals where they would respond to personal ads and then he would basically blackmail them. So uh, apparently he made hundreds of thousands of dollars from this scheme. So pretty crazy, pretty crazy stuff right there. And again, like I mentioned, this was in Biloxi, and he was part of Mike Gillage's gang. And so it's really one of those interesting sort of uh, cases where you have uh, guys that are basically going to wherever the um, money is. You know, they're, they're sort of uh, following the money, if you so, you know, if you know the reference. Another one of the main people in this organization was Billy Sunday Burt. Now, he was also a leader who committed many of the crimes in the South, and that was from the 60s to the 80s. He robbed, quote, unquote, burned, trafficked, bootlegged, and killed his way into infamy. He was found guilty of murdering a rich businessman in New Orleans in 1971 
for elderly people in Georgia in 1973. He also admitted to killing several others, including a family of three in North Carolina in 1972 and a sheriff in Georgia in 1987. Pretty terrible person. And that's the original person that we were talking about in this case. So at least he copped to his crimes, but boy, did he have a string of murders under his belt. Now, he also claimed to have some sort of role in the killing of Martin Luther King. I kept coming across that in my research, and there really has been no evidence of that. So he did receive the death penalty for the 1973 killings, but it was changed to life in prison later. And as I mentioned, I think he died in 2017 when he was 79 years old. Now, he had a wife named Ruby Nell Burt, and five kids, three of whom were also called Billy. That sounds very George Foreman-like, who named all his kids George. His oldest son, Stony Burt, looked up to his father and wrote a book about him called Daddy's Boy, the true story of Billy Sunday Burt. However, his youngest son, Shane Burt, hated his father and wrote a book that called him The Curse, the true story of Billy Sunday Burt. So, yeah, definitely a little break in that family. Hmm. (laughs) Wonder what the holidays are like around there. Must not be very fun. So, yeah, pretty interesting there. And, again, he did escape from prison. Now, this is pretty wild. He escaped from prison. Um, The first escape actually happened in 1968. He was in Georgia State Prison for armed robbery. And he basically just walked away. I mean, well, they attacked a guard and then took his clothes and keys and then casually walked out of the prison. They got into the car (laughs) that was parked outside. However, they were caught in Florida after just two days. They did escape. They, I mean, one guy, the Sunday Burt, Uh, The second escape happened in 1974 when he was on death row. Well, how in the hell is he escaping from death row for the killing of those two elderly couples in Georgia? He and another prison, Carl Isaacs, uh, another prisoner, I'm sorry, Carl Isaacs cut the bars of their cell and used a rope made of bedsheets to climb over the fence. Hey, original. They then stole a car and drove to Texas where they apparently murdered a man and took his money and car. They were caught again in, hey, the great state of Colorado after a week. So this guy wasn't very proficient at getting away with his escapes. So you can find out more about him with the amazing podcast series called In the Red Clay. Again, that's definitely something worth checking out. Then there's Richie Doucette, who was another boss of the Dixie Mafia. And he ran the Delray Hollow District of New, or- of New Bordeaux, a city in southern United States, under the protection of Sal Marcano, the city's most powerful crime lord and the head of the Marcano crime family. He had a reputation of being brutal, greedy, and often clashed with rival gangs like the Black Mob and the Haitian Mob over territory and profits. He was responsible for various criminal activities such as selling drugs, running brothels, generating and operating illegal gambling dens, and he also had a penchant for violence and torture because he enjoyed humiliating his enemies and his victims. 
He took over Delray Hollow after Sal Marcano ordered the massacre of Sammy Robinson and his son Ellis, the leaders of the black mob who used to control the area. Sammy was a respected figure in the neighborhood who ran a bar called Sammy's Bar and helped the locals with their problems. Now, Ellis was adopted, or is adopted, <laughs> and his son, who served in Vietnam with Lincoln Clay, a former black mob enforcer who became like a brother to him, Richie then oppressed and exploited the local community with his thugs, who extorted money from the businesses, harassed women, and beat up anyone who resisted. He met his end at the hands of one Lincoln Clay, who survived the attack on Sammy's bar and swore vengeance against Sal Marcano and his associates. Lincoln returned to Del Rey Hollow and waged a war against Richie and his men, eventually confronting him in a showdown at an abandoned amusement park called Baron Saturday's Fun Park. This sounds like a movie. Lincoln killed Richie Doucette by stabbing him in the chest with his own knife. Now there was Carl Douglas Toehead White. Just sounds like such a white guy. And he, again, operated in the South during the 60s and 70s. He was considered a leader. Again, they're all leaders of some facet of this organization. He specialized in bootlegging and drug trafficking. Hey, guess what he also specialized in? Murder. He did have a connection with the New Orleans crime family and the state line mob, a rival group that controlled the border area between Mississippi and Tennessee. He was also one of the main suppliers of illegal alcohol to Mike Gillich's clubs in Biloxi, Mississippi. Now, again, like I said, he was known for his violent temper. These guys are all ruthless anyway. So he would eliminate anybody that got in his way or crossed him. He was involved in more than 50 murders, which is nuts, but this was the way it was, apparently. And some of those people were his former associates, law enforcement officers, heck, even innocent bystanders. He was also a suspect in the assassination uh, attempt on Sheriff Buford, as I mentioned before. Now, who, now this is interesting because he had a girlfriend, his girlfriend Louise Hatchcock, in a shootout and that basically White was eventually killed by a rival bootlegger named Jack Hatchcock in 1969. And the last one I'm going to cover is Donald Ray D.R. Smith. And he has a long history of crime and violence. He was a drug dealer, arsonist. Again, uh, he was a close associate of Kirksey McCord Nix Jr. Uh, again, that was the son of... Um, Toehead White's boss and one of the masterminds behind the prison scam that defrauded all those people out of millions of dollars. And he actually helped him rid the scam while he was inside the penitentiary. Uh, now, they did both serve time in Louisiana. He was also involved in the murder of Judge Vincent Sherry. Again, they all seem to be involved in that case. I guess it's hard to say that these guys were... Uh, you know, ever going to get away with any of this stuff because too many people knew the activities. So, like I said, these activities included basically everything that was illegal. The movement of stolen merchandise, illegal alcohol, illegal drugs. They engaged in illegal gambling, prostitution, robbery, murder, 
arson, extortion, fraud, bootlegging, rum running, political corruption, and finally contract killing. Again, they became known as the anything for a buck gang and had one rule that members were expected to obey. And that was, thou shall not snitch to the cops, which we've all heard a million times. So the Dixie Mafia, you're wondering, why and how did they get away with all this stuff, is they infiltrated law enforcement, like most of these organizations do, by bribing, intimidating, or basically just corrupting some of the officials who were supposed to oppose their operations. They also took advantage of the lack of strong, coordinated law enforcement in some of the areas where they committed their crimes, such as small communities throughout the South. Some examples of how the Dixie Mafia infiltrated law enforcement are John Ransom, who was a former police officer in Biloxi, who became involved in a notorious murder case in 1987. Again, that is the murder of the judge and his wife. Now, that is also... Again, just crazy. Um, that was ordered by Mike Gillich Jr. And again, let's look at what we have here. He was one of the four people convicted in the case, along with Gillich, Holcomb, and Kirksey McCord Nix. Again, that was a plan that they had orchestrated from their prison cell. In 1991, a former Georgia State trooper named Billy Sunday Burt, hey, does that name sound familiar? Confessed to being a leader of the Dixie Mafia and admitted to killing several people, including that North Carolina family I'd mentioned before. And that was at the top of this episode. Now, he claimed that he had been paid off, uh, and then he paid off several law enforcement officials to cover up his crimes or basically help him escape any type of capture. Then you have Leroy Hobbs, who was a former sheriff of the Harrison County in Mississippi, who had a dark and controversial career. He was involved in a criminal conspiracy with this group. And basically, he used his powers and influence to just kind of give him protection. And he took bribes. Yeah, I mean, he would release prisoners. Uh, he hired a hitman to kill a rival. Now, he was arrested in 1984 after a five-year investigation by the FBI. Now, he pleaded did plead guilty to two charges of racketeering and extortion and actually was sentenced to 18 years in prison. He died in 2008 at the age of 73. You actually may have heard of some of these uh, cases or some of these things might sound familiar because they have made a couple shows and movies about this type of uh, activity. Justified would probably be the most famous one with Tim Timothy Oliphant. And that is, you know, again, loosely based off of what happened. And it is just interesting. And then there was Claws, which was on TNT, I believe, from 2017 to 2021, which was, again, uh, a group of manicurists out of Florida. One of my new favorite shows, The Righteous Gemstones, is also apparently depicted as dealing with some of the Dixie Mafia. So pretty cool and interesting how that all works and that type of stuff. I mean, just, you know, again, pop culture or life imitating art, art imitating life. It's just crazy. So 
they did work with other groups and some of those groups that they operated with. I mentioned the New Orleans crime family, which was a group of Italian American mobsters that ruled over Louisiana and parts of Mississippi. The Dixie Mafia did have a deal with the family's leader, Carlos Marcello, who let them work in his area for a share of their earnings. The Chicago outfit, which I mentioned earlier too, was a group of, again, Italian-American mobsters that had stakes in gambling and other illegal activities in the South. So they teamed up with them and the outfit's associates, and so they had people such as Frank the Irishman Sheeran, who was part of the plot to kill Jimmy Hoffa. Now that, again, is if you believe everything that you have seen when it comes to his case. And if you've seen To Kill an Irishman or whatever, The Irishman, uh, To Kill an Irishman, I think is the Danny Green movie. Apologies for that one. But I say, if you haven't seen The Irishman, it is about, um, you know, Frank Sheeran and that idea that he was responsible for the killing of Jimmy Hoffa. Of course, it's never been proven. The state line mob was a gang of moonshiners and gamblers that operated along the Mississippi-Tennessee border. The Dixie Mafia did have a good relationship with the state line mob bosses, and this was Jack and Louise uh, Hathcock, who owned a casino and brothel called Shamrock, the Shamrock Hotel. And then there was the Cornbread Mafia. What a lovely name. This was a network of marijuana growers and smugglers that operated in Kentucky and other states. The mafia associated and assisted the cornbread mafia with moving their product and avoiding the police. Then you had the cowboy mafia, a group of drug traffickers and money launderers that operated in Texas and Oklahoma. So you guys can see how big of a stretch these people really have. It's pretty in, pretty incredible. So there's a lot of stretch. Um, apparently the cowboy mafia's leader was Barry Seal, who was a CIA, CIA agent and a pilot. If you've listened to, I, I did an episode on Barry Seal. You can go back and check it out. He was interesting. Tom Cruise played him in a movie called American Maid, which is all about his exploits. Again, not necessarily the accurate portrayal of what Barry Seal looked like because... He was kind of a fat man, and Tom Cruise is definitely not that. So watch it with a grain of salt. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Now, there were some rivals that they did face, and one of those was the Black Mob. They were a powerful gang of African Americans who ruled the Delray Hollow neighborhood in New Bordeaux, Louisiana. The two groups did compete for control for various illegal businesses, and of course they would clash. And when they did so, it would be violent. And they were eventually able to eliminate the Black Mob's leadership, Sammy Robinson and his son, Ellis, with the help of their allies. Now, we mentioned this before. The Haitian Mob was a criminal organization that operated in New Bordeaux as well. And it's basically the group was formed by Haitian refugees who had fled the dictatorship of Papadoc. And that was in the late 1960s. Some of them were former criminals who wanted to carve out their own territory in the city. Of course, they clashed with the mafia, white supremacists, and all those other gangs. 
Again, the Haitian mob also challenged the black mob, which was led by Sammy Robinson, who paid tribute to the Marcano crime family. The Haitians tried to disrupt Sammy's lottery racket and recruited some of his men to their side. The leader of the Haitian mob was Cassandra, a young woman who pretended to be a captive of Baca, a brutal enforcer who acted as the group's frontman. Lincoln Clay, a Vietnam War veteran and Sammy's adopted son, was the one who killed Baca and rescued Cassandra, unaware of her true role. Whoops. Lincoln later allied with Cassandra and the Haitian mob to take down the Marcanos and the Dixie Mafia, who betrayed and killed Sammy and his brother, as I mentioned earlier. So you hear about these cases, and it's pretty insane. Of course, you know, the law enforcement trying to stop them, uh, bring them to justice. These were, of course, the FBI, the DEA, the ATF, the IRS, every local police department in the area. I wouldn't say everyone because everyone was, you know, not everyone was paid off, but a lot of people were paid off. So they had a lot of interesting run-ins with uh, the law, but not really because they just paid everybody off. Now, the current state of the Dixie Mafia is really uncertain at this point. Some reports suggest that the group has ceased to exist or actually has not has been severely weakened by arrests and prosecution over the years. Of course, people have died, but some people have said that the group is still active in some parts of the South, and they are tied to corrupt politicians, shocking, and cops, almost as shocking. It is possible that the Dixie Mafia has changed its name or has joined forces with other criminal groups over time. So that is an overview of this crazy group called the Dixie Mafia. They were robbing, killing, stealing, pillaging the South for years and years and years. And it is an amazing, amazing story to think that there was this kind of loose-knit group that operated somewhat together and were able to get away with so many crimes. So, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, Crime Capsule, we did a whole series on this for Killer Podcasts. You can download those anywhere you get your podcasts. We spoke with Rita Schuler, who was, oh, she worked at SLED, so South Carolina. Uh, Again, lots of interesting people that we talked to about the Dixie Mafia. So, let's uh, end this week's episode on that note. Go check out Crime Capsule, and as always, check out Nick's book from True Crime Garage. That's the Delphi book, and that's available wherever books are purchased. And we always appreciate Nick for any time he comes on the show. And again, thank you guys for tuning in this week. As you know, I drop new episodes every Friday. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do so at BillHuffman3. It has become a cesspool, thanks to one Elon Musk. No more comment. But if you want to follow me on Instagram, which is a lot more fun, the handle is at slow, S-L-O underscore burn media. So you can follow me on either of those and check out what's going on in the world of true crime, as well as what's going on in the 
world of who killed so tune in next week for a brand new episode as always until next time stay healthy and be safe Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface, to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com